Hey guys, welcome back to the Well Said Podcast. Uh, we're again here talking about uh, what it means to follow Jesus in a post-Christian culture. And we're coming back around to talk about the race question uh, this week with my good friend and fellow pastor, Andre Gorbin. Uh, Andre Gorbin is a pastor at uh, Word of Grace, right? Yes, sir. Am I saying that right? Word of Grace Bible Church in Vancouver, graduate of Master's Seminary in Los Angeles. Uh, the reason I hesitated with Word of Grace is because there's like Word of Truth, Word of Grace. Uh, we're, our church is Living Word, so... So many words. I get jumbled with the words. I know. <laughs> uh, man, you know, it's been an interesting time. I've been looking forward to this conversation because I feel like, uh, you know, throughout the last five years, this whole race conversation has come and gone. And I feel like this time it's different. Uh, I think this time it seems like it's more of a turning point, uh, at least for people in our community, uh, in the Russian, uh, Slavic churches, immigrant churches, you know, it's, it's hitting us in kind of a new, in a new way where in the past it felt like it kind of slid by us. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, this time it seems like everyone's involved. Everyone's involved in talking about it, thinking through it. And I think overall that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the reason for that is kind of multifaceted. Uh, I, I, I want to believe the best about why the conversation is happening from many different sides. But I think just by virtue of it being as politicized as it is, everybody feels like, you know, they, they have a dog in the fight to a certain extent. So mm -hmm. by by taking a side or by not taking a side, like even being you know apolitical at this point is a is a political stance. So right. I think that just by uh, by taking a side or not taking a side, you kind of assume a position or at least a conviction in this regard. So for many people, because the conversation is being pushed as much as it is by the culture, a lot of Christian leaders are feeling the need to jump into that conversation, whether in a, in a healthy or helpful way or in an unhealthy, unhelpful way. Right. Everybody uh, seems to be kind of chipping in their own idea, their own two cents into the conversation. And so virtually everybody you talk to is more or less thinking about it in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it could be a good thing. I think for me, there was like a conscious moment in the last couple of weeks where I was like paused and I was thinking, okay, I need to figure this out. Uh, I've kept this on the sideline personally for myself. I haven't had, I haven't faced a situation where I had to deal with it and dig in more and research and learn. And it was a conscious like click for me. Like, okay, you know what? I really don't know what I'm talking about with this subject in many ways. And I need to be educated more. You know, sure, yeah. so I think that's that's a good thing, and 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 in that sense, it's a turning point for a lot of people. Yeah, um, yeah, and like I said, I think one of the main things, like particularly for Christians, I think we can disconnect from the broader conversation right. defined by the world. You know, we 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 can't disconnect ourselves from the conversation, but certainly the the parameters that are given by the world by secular society to to have that conversation. I think we always, as Christians, should. In whatever way we could kind of rise above the fray and i don't mean that in a condescending way but rather you know if, if we seek to kind of uh, adopt the mind of god about these things and and have that be the lens through which we look at all of these things then then certainly the way that we process all of this has to look different 
Right. You know? Right. Uh, and uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. But basically, I think that um, in, in in kind of maintaining that conviction and seeing that like this is going to look much different for us, uh, I, I don't think that we really have the option of just excluding ourselves from developing a conviction about this. And I'm actually right. not as concerned with to what extent someone will agree or disagree with me. Uh, I, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to continue his work. I believe in Jesus' promise that he will continue to build his church. I believe that he will not leave us to our own devices to fend for ourselves and figure these things out. And so in believing that and having that that love that believes and assumes and hopes for all the best in, in my brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. then I, I just, my main hope is that in having in processing this stuff and, and having that opportunity to develop those convictions, we're, we're seeking to do that in, in a faithful way through the proper framework. Right, right. And you know, for me, I gotta say, I'm, I, I, I feel like I'm still kind of mid, mid research. Like I've kind of jumped into digging and reading even this week, you know, I, I was hoping to get through more certain, certain things that I was reading more uh, before this conversation. But even, even in the middle of all this, I'm just like elbow deep. Uh, I feel like there's a definite switch, a shift in my perspective on this issue. Um, and uh, so I wanted to hear your story because it sounds like, unlike me, you haven't been detached from this conversation, uh, you know, over the last five to 10 years, as much as I have. And uh, would love to hear just kind of how God has shaped your perspective. What are the forces in that? Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me just say right up front, uh, because I, I've been thinking about, just because I've been thinking about this for a long time doesn't mean that I have been as thoughtful or as biblical as I should be. And I think what, mm-hmm. what I've kind of shared with you in the past is not so much that I've been like intentionally prop processing all of this, developing a biblical framework through which to look at all of these things, but rather it's something that has just kind of been brought to my attention earlier on in my life. And then at different stages in life, I think that even prior to salvation, the Lord kind of highlighted certain things and, you know, he he certainly laid the groundwork uh, through my own past and experiences to kind of think about these things. So I'd love to think that this has been a journey that the Lord has led me on. And um, yeah, but like, basically this, this started for me at a, at a very, very young age. Uh, my family immigrated to the States when I was seven years old. So uh, I, I, I really am much more American than I am Slavic at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Most of my life has been here. And when we immigrated, we, we moved to Portland uh, and I grew up in Portland. So seven year old, uh, first grader, hopping into school and uh, we moved to a uh, part of Portland, uh, Northeast Portland. And it was, it was much more um, multicultural, I think, than a lot of parts of Portland. Oregon and Washington in general are not very diverse. Uh, and I don't really need to get into the details of that. It's a very interesting history on why we're not diverse. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a different question entirely. But w- without having that you know, those categories to think about, you know, like, why, why does everybody vaguely look like me? Um, but then there is still some diversity. So I kind of like, 
I was, I was blessed to see that. I was, I was in an area that had a little bit more diversity than other parts of Portland. But one of the things that stuck out to me almost immediately in like in elementary school, I went to a very, very good elementary school. I was in a great school district. I was blessed with awesome teachers. Um, and so we, we studied, you know, American history in a very basic way. And we studied things like the Oregon Trail and Native Americans. And we got to visit, you know, different parts of the Oregon Trail or going to, you know, reservations. Like I remember as a kid going to reservations, you know, I didn't know it was a reservation then. I just knew that they had warm springs. And <laughs> so right. we'd go there with my family. And then, um, but kind of trying to process that, I do remember the point at which we talked about American slavery and uh, segregation and all of that. And as a kid, it was just baffling to me. I was like, okay, I understand that Americans don't like me because my family speaks with a weird accent and, you know, we, we all have kind of odd names and we stick out and this and that. And so that made a little bit more sense to me, like we're different, and, but like, as far as I knew, black people were Americans. <laughs> and so for me, right. it's a very, very bizarre <laughs> thing that like they would be treated like that. And, uh, and as a young kid, I, I, you know, I was, I was in love with hip hop. Like one of the first things that I discovered in terms of my own music preferences was uh, a friend of mine in third grade. I still remember this. He gave me two cassette tapes and they were, I'm not going to name the artists, but they were secular hip hop artists. And, and I was just <laughs> like, this is the best music that has ever existed. And so I think in, in certain ways I was introduced to that aspect of American culture at a very, very young age. And then as I'm processing all of these things, I'm just kind of confused by the history of slavery, the history of segregation, all of this stuff. And that kind of continued to develop throughout my life. Um, I, I grew up, I, I played basketball my whole life. I started playing basketball at a very young age and I loved basketball. Um, and in middle school, I went to a middle school, a very uh, diverse middle school as well. It was in a different school district, but by this point it was like a Hispanic and an Asian neighborhood, predominantly like Vietnamese and Hispanic. And so again, a lot of diversity in that middle school. Then high school, I was in a pretty diverse high school. By the time I was a freshman, I was uh, drafted to a basketball team that was other than me and one white kid, if I, if I recall correctly, it was all black. And, uh, and our practices were in the deep part of Northeast Portland and North Portland that were uh, like predominantly black neighborhoods, traditionally black neighborhoods. So I had to take like a couple of buses and the max, which was like this train to go into that neighborhood, meet up with my teammates and walk through the neighborhoods. And so for me, I was, I was kind of exposed a little bit more to what like gentrification was and what it you know what low-income housing for minority communities was before I even had the categories to think about these things but it was always like a, mm -hmm. huh well, that's interesting kind of a moment um, mm -hmm. and so I was exposed to that I, I was thinking about these things and as I kind of continued to you know grow up in Portland I, I started to notice some of these things you know you develop friendships with people and you start to kind of hear from friends like their experience is much different than mine and I started to understand that where I kind of had that category of thinking like, oh, well, I'm a, like, I'm, I'm a foreigner or I'm an immigrant kid. But very quickly, you come to understand that once you kick the accent, you just kind of blend in in your society. And, and talking to mm -hmm. a black friend, uh, they just don't really have that option, you know. And so right. just by virtue of it, you know, us having a certain history and however we view that history is kind of irrelevant, you know. You talk to enough people and you'll hear not from everybody but certainly from uh, a number of people um, 
in the black community that their experience is just much, much different. And so again, you, you kind of compartmentalize these different experiences. Here's how I viewed this growing up. Here's how I understood this. Here's something that stuck out. Here's one thing I heard. And a lot of this kind of, you know, again, was just kind of placed on a shelf for me. And uh, I didn't think about it in deep terms. I, I wasn't a believer. So for me, again, this wasn't really an issue of like, I need to think through this. What, is, what do these things mean? How does this form my, my view of people, you know? My, what does my biblical anthropology have to say about this? I wasn't really thinking about those categories, right. but it was it was kind of in the back of my mind as you know there is something going on. There is a history here. There's a there's a broader picture that I'm not necessarily privy to. Uh, and then I got saved at 21. Um, the Lord graciously saved me. Um, I married my my dear wife at 24. We you know we started dating at 23. Got married at 24. Um, and uh, the Lord called me into ministry. I fell in love with, with ministry and I, I wanted to preach. I wanted to teach. I wanted to be with people. And, uh, so we moved to seminary. I wanted to get trained. I wanted to be better equipped for seminary and we, we moved to LA. And I think that this is where the Lord really started to flesh some of these things out. So there, there was a certain level of, you know, kind of digging those, those past thoughts up, processing them. And I just started to develop friendships with classmates, with neighbors and LA is very diverse. And that's where I kind of started to learn about why Portland is not so diverse. That's where I started mm -hmm. to learn kind of a little bit more of that history of, you know, gentrification and why even in my own lifetime, that area that I used to go to for basketball practices is no longer, a, you know, a, a part of the city that a lot of uh, African-Americans live. But now it's just a very trendy, very hip, you know, Whole Foods and uh, really fancy coffee hmm. shops and, you know, cool vintage stores. And it's an expensive part of the, the city where like pretty much the majority of that black population has been moved out to another part of the city. And that was just, you know, hmm. from my teen years till like 10 years ago, this started to happen. Mm -hmm. And so you start to process that. And then I started to meet, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ from the Midwest and from the South and from the East coast. And, uh, you know, one of my neighbors uh, was a dear friend of my wife and I, he and his wife, he grew up in uh, St. Louis, his wife was from Chicago. And he's like, just a million times better as a person than I ever was. Like, I was a pretty mm. crummy dude as a teenager. Like, you know, I, I partied and did a bunch of things that I shouldn't be doing. I was I did a bunch of illegal stuff. And I was just shady as an individual to begin with. And my buddy's like a good guy, you know, He's like a military man. He's worked hard. He got saved young. And when he starts to tell me how cops look at him and the experiences that he's had, I'm just like, well, that's really unfair. Like if anybody should be picked on and messed with, it's, it's me because of, you know, the past that mm -hmm. I've had. His, wife, his wife's experiences growing up in Chicago. They're both African-Americans, much different than mine. Started talking to friends from, you know, D.C., guys that are, you know, that minister around LA and you just start to see that there's this different story that kind of unfolds. And I think that, that the Lord really, really used that time in mine and my wife's life to just start to understand that there's more going on here. And the, the kind of the, the visceral reaction is just like, you know, either to be outraged or to be angry and I think that in, in an appropriate holy anger type of sense that, that that has its place. But I think that more so it prompted my wife and I to think like, well, what does this mean for us as a Christians, but also in those as those ministering 
um, in terms of how we think about these things and how we process these things. And so that's where I really started mm -hmm. to just research more, uh, listen more, read more, interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would say that the majority of my conviction has been developed just through conversations and from hearing from other believers. Uh, and that's certainly been my wife's story as well. Like I've asked her about this and for her, the big thing was just like, if a brother or sister in Christ tells me about what their life is like, and there's something that's different, something that's painful, something that's difficult, um, how could I not listen? How could I not react mm -hmm. to that? You know? And so I think that that's probably been the biggest point for us uh, is when we saw how our friends, how our brothers and sisters um, have a much different experience than we do. When you are, so, you know, when you say that right now, uh, I can instinctively feel the response from most of our folks, probably like, or people that we hang out with mostly or in our church circles, uh, which is going to be mostly, you know, e either mostly English speaking uh, Russian Americans. And uh, the response is going to be something like, uh, well, what do you mean that it's different? And, and more specifically, I think, as you bring up examples, oh, you know, he was treated differently by police or this or that, uh, the response is going to be something like, well, is that, is that actually racism or is that um, just how they perceive themselves and how it kind of an, it, a self-fulfilling um, prophecy or, or a bias that they have of society and then they interpret that back onto them, you know what I'm saying? So if you just advance this idea to most folks in our circles, they're going to have a little pushback, I think, right, towards sure. you and say, uh, well, what do you mean? So my question then, I guess, is as you were going through this, especially in seminary, right, because this is where you're intellectually developing, you're theologically developing, did you have that pushback within yourself or with your wife as you guys were trying to wrap your mind around uh is there really a problem for people who are minority colored and specifically black people? You know what I'm saying? So did, was that wrestling match present in your life? And how did you guys, how, what was the process there? Yeah, I think that my wife probably wrestled with that a little bit more because like I said, uh, I, I do believe that the Lord kind of helped me lay some of that groundwork earlier. And so a lot of that started to kind of flood back when I would hear from, from other believers. And so for me, it was just, it added to that kind of conversation that had stemmed over really a couple of decades in my life. Um, for my wife, there was certainly more of that wrestling. Um, and I think that this is where, what I said a little bit earlier, I, I, I really do believe this to be true. I, I don't think, like, I would love it if we would push for unity and, uh, and, and a unified way of thinking about these things, processing these things. But I definitely like, I understand and I'm sympathetic to the fact that like, we can look at the same thing and, and walk away with different conclusions. And so my main issue is not so much that like, we're just, you know, point for point, we're seeing all of these things in the exact same way. Uh, I don't right. think we'll really ever reach that. Uh, on this side of heaven, but I think that what we can push for is the ability to actually listen. And so the, the main issue is not so much that we say like, well, what is the reason for all of these things? But rather like what kind of response do we as uh, representatives of Christ have to somebody who says, you know, I, I've been hurt, I've, I've experienced, you know, some level of, of injustice or suffering. You know, and I think that when our initial pushback is just, you know, spouting off statistics or you know, right. questioning that, 
I, I don't think that in that we show Christ. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really care why we do that, but at least initially we're not showing Christ in that. And so I think there's just the importance to say, to like kind of put that aside and put like explaining things away aside and, uh, and just be able to say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Um, and I think that even if the conclusion at the end of that conversation is not what the, the hurting person would desire, but they felt like they've been cared for and loved and understood and heard, um, that shows Christian love, that shows Christian compassion. Um, I think you've read this article, but like Shailen said this really interesting thing, you know, like it's something to the effect of, you know, making a hurting person justify their pain. And, and I think that that's a very, very damaging thing that when we push people to do that, uh, when you approach things with an air of cynicism, and I, and I say cynicism, not skepticism, I think skepticism can be healthy. It can be unhealthy too, mm -hmm. but at least at its forefront, it's it's healthy, you know. Yeah. To, to the extremes uh, is where it gets kind of bad. Cynicism, I, I believe, doesn't really have a place for Christian conduct. You know, if we just approach everybody believing, you know, approaching those conversations with our own presuppositions and believing what we want to believe about that person prior to actually hearing and understanding. And we see this over and over in scripture, right? Like quick to quick to listen, slow to speak, um, being the one to show compassion. You know, even Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, will we'll talk about how we'll kind of like relinquish our own rights for the sake of not doing something against another person. Like somebody wants to do you wrong, like don't fight back. Don't like grab onto your own rightness or your own uh, right to something, but rather, you know, allow for that to, to happen and in your response and in your in the way that you process these things to show God in that in that scenario. Yeah, I think what you're I think that's a huge principle that that was one of the key principles that first hit me as I was surveying my own heart response. Um, we don't understand the degree to which we have all been conditioned into a certain perspective that we haven't really evaluated very deeply. Most of the people in our communities have not thought long and hard about the race question in America. That's a fact, yeah, right? Very true. We're, co we're coming in pretty ignorant and all of a sudden uh, we are statistic experts in this area. Like how, you, you know, because we read a Ben Shapiro article. Um, I think that we don't have enough skepticism towards our own perspectives. Where did we get our perspectives, first of all? And second of all, we have this, um, I think there's a tendency, maybe you can uh, comment also, in our uh, reformed Christian circles of um, a very preoccupied fear of anything that smells like certain heresy and being quick to jump to condemn an idea without listening uh, carefully, even if that's coming from a fellow brother or sister in Christ, uh, and there's this like we're driven by a fear of heresy, uh, which it's very important to avoid false doctrine. I understand that, right? But we have we often have an unhealthy fear of anything that is in our perfectly reformed worldview being questioned or corrected, right? Yeah, yeah. And look, I think uh, again, 
I'm coming back to this time and time again. Um, I want to believe the best about my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it's super easy to just have the best view of somebody that agrees with you, you know, right. like Andre, you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things. And, and I think it's very, very easy for me to be able to say, I, I love embrace and accept my brother Andre. Uh, where somebody who just says like, no, you're wrong on the race question. You're wrong in your application of that text. You don't understand this nuance. You haven't considered the statistic for me to then say, I still believe that this person is trying to honor Christ and is trying to think about how they're going to love their neighbor and the way that they're going about it might be a way that I disagree with, but ultimately I, I believe the best about this brother or sister. That's really hard, but I think that that's very, very necessary right now because we uh, we really dig our heels in when we start feeling attacked in our position. And I've done this, man. I've had I've put my foot in my mouth so many times because I just start like getting very defensive about something, not not even about this question, but just in general theologically or whatever. And then I just push too far. And then I start, right. you know, like letting the pendulum swing way to the other side. And so it's very, very unhealthy to do that. And so I think that this at least if I'm going to believe the best about my brothers and sisters and somebody, you know, their approach is that they're just very afraid of heresy. Well, dude, good. Like be afraid of heresy, be afraid of false doctrine, be afraid of a false gospel, you know, because unfortunately a lot of this conversation that is kind of stemming out of the church right now uh, is often coming from circles where there is kind of an interweaving of these unhelpful things. And so we should be wary of that. We should be wary of, you know, mm -hmm. like there are serious implications to like uh, weaving the social gospel into this conversation. We should be very careful about that. There are very serious implications right. with adopting terminology from critical race theory, intersectionality, and just kind of taking that in wholesale and then letting that guide the conversation. Like that's a very serious thing. And, and that leads down heretical roads. And so I would rather that we take the conversation a little bit slower analyze two, three, four times, you know, in that process uh, and, and kind of move forward. But having said that, I think that we really need to um, be willing to stretch ourselves. Uh, I, I've often said this thing, I, I, I really, really love the tension that we see both theologically and, you know, practically of how two things that are seemingly opposing or that they are incongruous how they don't have to fit super neatly for us in order for them to both be true. And we see these things with different mm -hmm. doctrines, you know, like I don't have to read one portion of scripture through a theological lens, uh, but rather I can let scripture interpret itself and I can kind of study right. what God has to say, even if those things don't fit perfectly for me. Um, God doesn't seem to take any issue with those things seeming to be mutually exclusive. Uh, and so right. I think that we move forward kind of keeping that in mind is that this tension will remain. We're, we're each dragging in our own experiences and presuppositions and that's okay. Let's process as we go. Let's deal with these things as we go. But I'm only okay with that being the way we move forward. So long as the lens through which we're analyzing is scripture. If my right. lens yeah. is the Republican platform, if my lens is the Democratic platform, if my lens is Ben Shapiro or the Daily Wire or Fox News or CNN or whatever, you know, like take it in any direction you want. If that's my lens, I failed as a Christian. Uh, it doesn't really matter what, you know, the, the super liberal or the super conservative has to say.
Uh, right. Ben Shapiro is helpful in certain things, but he's not a believer. He's not analyzing these things, you know, through the understanding of how a Christian is to process and think about these things and show love and grace. Uh, that's not his primary objective. And so for him to help me guide my, or, or lead me and developing my convictions is not only problematic, it's wrong. Yeah. You know, and I think when I'm reading some of the stuff these last few weeks, uh, this is a realization that I think we often have a hard time with is understanding that very good Christians, biblical Christians can disagree on stuff uh, and that's okay. And um, good, solid Christians can be very wrong on certain things as well. And it doesn't mean that they were bad people in the past. So I, we have this tendency, we have our heroes and our heroes can do no wrong. And because of that, we fit everything around us through the lens of the heroes that can do no wrong. And well, since, you know, back in the day, Jonathan Edwards didn't say anything about racism or, or slavery, and Jonathan Edwards is a saint, then it must be not that big of an issue, you know? And we are afraid to say, you know, I love Jonathan Edwards, but he might have been very wrong on this. And that's okay, because he's a sinner just like me. You know, yeah. and as I'm reading your point here and I'm reading these articles, you know, Shailen was a really great example. I'm reading some of these articles and I'm realizing, man, like these are really Christ loving people yeah. um, who are telling me a story of American Christianity and American experience that I have largely been completely unaware of. And so like just that realization that, um, hmm. I've been missing something here. And, and these people are good Christ exalting people. They're not cultural Marxist. Uh, they're not trying to, you know, push a democratic agenda into the Christian, you know, context. They're, they're real Christians. Yeah. So that to me, that kind of burst the bubble. That was like, oh, okay, wait, let's, there's some things to learn here, For sure. you know? Yeah. And looking back at um, the civil rights movement, just realizing you know, this is the interesting thing, how we tend to, we can fixate on one error and realize that this, this is my danger. I need to avoid cultural Marxism and forget that there could be other errors sneaking up, sneaking up on me as I'm avoiding this one, you know, oh. and it, it like, you know, we see it during the civil rights movement and before that, you know, the social gospel came up as a force in American evangelicalism, liberal Christianity, which things, these things are bad and these are not good. They're not biblical things. But uh, the leaders of that time, wonderful theologians, wonderful pastors, um, in desiring to avoid that error, um, made some errors of their own, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this is what, what I mentioned earlier, but like it's it's that swinging of the pendulum too far. So with theological liberalism, the, the pendulum swung like way too far over here. Like it was it was off track. And then understandably, Bible-believing faithful Christians are like, that's messed up. That's really wrong. That's that's heresy. People are being led astray. And they start just pulling it back but they yanked it so hard that we ended up in like hardcore fundamentalism with you know x amount of degrees of separation and all of this stuff which you know unhelpful doesn't even begin to define it like it, it got to a form of legalism that started to lead people astray in a similar way as theological liberalism did 
Uh, and right now, you know, with, with our young adult Bible study, we just started to study the book of Galatians. And so like, how do we process that middle ground of, you know, not, not veering off to legalism, but also not, not abusing liberty. And so like, there's always this middle ground. And what you see over and over is Paul is just like, and you have to understand the gospel. And he's writing to a group of Christians and like right at the outset, he, he gives his greeting and then he just gives like a really theological presentation of the gospel. A few verses later, he does it again. And it's just the more that we're anchored in the reality of how we're freed from these things, who the person is that has freed us and the life that produces, the more that we start to have those answers. Okay, how do I process this? How do I not veer off course here? How do I not push it too far in the opposite way? Uh, but once we start to rely on these, you know, these different systems and these, you know, momentary solutions, really, um, gosh, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you mentioned um, so talking about like the civil rights movement and the church's response. You know, the interesting thing again is there's a lot of people there that got the gospel right, but you read American history and there's like a, a lot of segregation was supported by a lot of Christians. You know, America is a very, in a sense, permeated with Christianity, you know, culture. And it is a lot of our Christian, uh, we had the gospel, right? We had that foundation in many ways, but um, they supported systems and institutions that literally were uh, murdering mm -hmm you know, brothers and sisters in Christ of a different skin color, uh, treating them as much lesser than. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm reading a book called uh, Divided by Faith by a couple of sociologists right now. It's, it's mostly like a kind of a sociological analysis of like Christians, uh, Christians throughout the last hundred years in America on this question. And many Christians who have, just like today, um, a very good heart to say, of course not. We should not hate people based on their skin color. We should not, you know, we should love all neighbors, love all of our neighbors and, and value all people. Uh, these same Christians would say there is no problem in America with regard to race during the Jim Crow era, where there's colored seating on every bus stop and colored water fountains and colored bathrooms and like you, you're you're everything was separated yeah, yeah. and and I, how how do you how would you help maybe like you know our, our young people are asking this you know it's like how is it that people can have the gospel and yet be so blind or miss such a big issue like american racism and say the segregation era you know how would you explain that? Yeah. An interesting thing when you actually kind of look at that era and what a lot of religious leaders were saying is it, it, it almost completely, um, we're, we're almost totally mimicking what they used to say now. So what they said then was, well, that's a political issue. The church's responsibility right. is to preach the gospel. We don't need to delve into politics and laws and social issues. And so this is that was at a time when, you know, a black person can be beaten for drinking out of the wrong fountain, water fountain, you know, or, um, you know, veterans from the war would be returning and not not able to get their their military benefits after fighting in the Second World War. And the church's response was like, well, that's that's not our problem. That's not what we're 
Right. And that's certainly an oversimplification. I, I understand that. I, I don't want to like lump everybody in because I think that there were at that time a lot of godly people who did respond accurately and correctly and biblically. And I don't want to just lump everybody in. But by and large, what you saw was that was kind of the conversation. So I think that what we see there is really like what you mentioned about Jonathan Edwards, right? Uh, look, the best of men is, men is a man at best. And we have this understanding that we're all very flawed and broken people. Like I'm, I'm amazed reading about David, Solomon. Like we would totally excommunicate these people from our churches. And yet these are men that were used in, in huge ways. And like, they're not unique, you know, <laughs> uh, Abraham, Moses, and just keep walking down that line. Uh, but the fact remains that God is very, very gracious. And what we see there is not the, the ugliness of a certain sin or behavior that is to be highlighted, but rather the beauty of the grace and the mercy of God to continue to patiently work with people who, have wrong understandings in certain things. And I don't think there's anybody today that thinks that the Jim Crow era was good. Like nobody's going to look back on that and defend it. Uh, I, I haven't met anybody. I, uh, but so we all understand that there was, that was wrong. And yet there were, we also understand that during that time that there were great men and women of God, you know, many of whom we might even read and study today who were, Right. leaders evangelical leaders at that time and so we see that there was a faulty understanding there was you know a false framework that people were looking at these things through they were creating an uh a, a distinction that biblically i don't think that they had the right to do i want to be careful there because i think you know it's very easy to look back and judge people um but in in, in everything that i could see and being as, as gracious as I could possibly be, I, I have to say that those Christians who thought that segregation was okay and good, they were wrong. They were wrong and that conviction was a sinful conviction because it did not mm -hmm. stem out of a biblical anthropology. It didn't stem out of a biblical understanding of who man is. And a lot of that was a lingering rhetoric in the culture about the, the worth and dignity of people with darker skin. And so there, I think during that era, what happened was not that there was these evil conniving, you know, people that were just trying to hurt black people as much as they could. And some of them were, and um, that's a different issue altogether. But for, for most people, I think that they just allowed the culture to define their understanding of the image of God in man over against what the Bible actually teaches. And then they didn't consider what their conduct toward people in their culture should be like and how they should view the injustice and mistreatment of a fellow image bearer. And, and that's a very sad picture of the church's weakness and blind spot for those years. Yeah, I think when we look at that, we shouldn't say, oh, dang, they messed up. I think we should say, wow, um, we are all prone to make the same exact mistakes. I am not, I am not a better Christian than Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield. You know, George Whitfield bought slaves illegally in the state where he was organizing an orphanage uh, to help organize the orphanage. He, he basically said, look, we can't, we can't make this orphanage survive unless we buy slaves. And the slaves in that state were illegal. So, and again, um, 
that's a big mistake. But, you know, uh, the worst thing that we can do when we look at the messiness of history, and especially the history of our heroes, is to think that uh, we are somehow above that, you know? Um, I think that when you look at their mindset, you see that they had operated in a system, a perspective that uh, made them blind to this, this thing that was right in front of them. The interesting thing is that when you read the responses of Christians uh, during Jim Crow, they're almost word for word identical to the responses of Christians right now. But Jim Crow Christians were talking about, look, we, we abolished, we had a slave, we had a race problem, but we abolished slavery. Things are so much better. And today people are saying, oh, come on, you know, you look at Jim Crow, that was terrible segregation, but you know, we, we abolished that. So everything is better now. So maybe that follows in another question. We, we tend to, um, you know, as conservative Christians, we have a we we will uh, readily assent to the idea that individually we are broken. Individually, we are prone to hate our neighbor, and so racism is evil. It's an individual sin. But there's a big pushback against thinking about the fact that uh, sin can permeate systems, can permeate laws and uh, cultural attitudes. So, like. On the people will always often, you know, conservatives will agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I need to love my black neighbors or brown neighbors. Shouldn't judge them based on their skin color. And uh, I am prone to do that. I'm prone to make, you know, have a bias. But then when it said when, when it comes to saying, well, what about um, systems? What about discrimination? There's this pushback saying, no, that doesn't happen. Uh, no, we're past that. So uh, like any any thoughts or comments on. Um, why is it that we're so hesitant to agree that that systemic racism is possible in a broken world? So I think that the challenge that you inevitably run up against when saying something like systemic racism is real or structural racism is real. Um, John Piper has a very helpful article. It's a fairly short article where he basically defines what structural racism is. It's really straightforward. It's biblical, and I think it's it's healthy to, you know, even if you disagree with him at the end, I think it's healthy to kind of get that that kind of uh, understanding and that kind of definition. He'll certainly uh, explain it better than I can. But I think that one of the things that is very difficult for people uh, to, or a difficulty that people run up against with saying that that system can be in place or that structure can be in place is they assume that when you say that, that means that, uh, America is a racist country uh, mm-hmm. or that you say that Americans are racist or that you say that um, black people don't have the same freedoms that Americans, that white Americans do. Uh, and so that's, I think, the assumption for a lot of people. And if you go off of that kind of thinking about what structural racism is, then yeah, <laughs> I think that I, I agree with that. Uh, while I, I do believe that there are systems and structures that have been impacted by our history and by the individual conduct and decisions of, of people throughout our history, uh, I don't think that America is a racist nation. I don't think that every American is racist. I don't think that you know every white American is, is guilty of the sin of racism and they're secretly walking around you know, hoping for the worst for their black neighbor. I don't believe that, and I don't think that any sane, rational Christian would believe that. Uh, 
But what we're dealing with is the inarguable history of how black people have been treated in America. You know, beginning from the time of the transatlantic slave trade when they were brought over here. Um, and the, the country was really, I, I wouldn't say it was established on the, on the backs of slaves, but certainly a large part of our economy and our growth as a nation, as a young nation, uh, was built upon this institution. And this was a right. really prevalent part of our history. During that time, when you know people had to wrestle with the fact that not only are we enslaving a people, but there's this, this rhetoric that's happening about um, the way that we view them. How do I interact with my slave? Do, do they get to go free at some point? What happens when my slave has a child, you know? And when they start wrestling with these questions, that conversation really shifted to, you know, really a, a deepening of the understanding of chattel slavery. And so like, well, this, this isn't a person, this is property. And so understandably for however many generations as you have this, these people, uh, you, you have yourself some slaves. And so there's this kind of redefining of the humanity of these people, right? These, these Africans that had been brought over here and their descendants and then Africa, they become African Americans just by virtue of being here. Um, but that redefinition of their humanity, of their worth, of their dignity, of their, the, the value of their life, of their soul, uh, was really diminished. And there was, you know, a whole propaganda campaign that lasted over, you know, gosh, 200 years where, you, you know, that there was an understanding that the, they're not human. They, they don't have the same value. They don't have, they're just essentially glorified animals. Uh, you do with them whatever you please. And so when the, uh, the institution of American chattel slavery came to an end in uh, 1865, if, if, my rate, if my dates aren't getting mixed up, you know, a lot of people had to reconcile, well, what do we do with these freed animals? And so that started other campaigns that basically redefined what freedom was. And then and there you see there was like a fight, right, to how do we continue to function as a society without completely disintegrating with this being such a central part. So basically they started to, the American government started to criminalize uh, what it meant to be free and then uh, not work, right? And so you see laws in the South that basically started to um, imprison people who didn't have jobs. Well, who didn't have jobs in those times? It was just black people, right? Mm -hmm. you see all of these freed slaves now becoming imprisoned and then once they're imprisoned, they're forced into labor and they're basically given back to their former slave masters and a lot of these plantations to continue that work. So slavery in many ways actually continued after the abolition of slavery. And then in the 1890s, you see the development of like this continued fight to not allow these people to have, you know, the, the same rights and really just an understanding of their humanity. And so there, th that dialogue continues, you know, into the Jim Crow era, where basically there's segregation and there's, you know, like there's this fight to like, well, they surely can't be in the same schools as us. They surely can't live in the same neighborhoods as us. And then you see the development of these ghettos where, you know, formerly poor white people are moved out of these ghettos, poor black people are moved into these ghettos, and they're kind of not allowed to move out of they're not allowed to get home loans, they're returning from the war, and they're not seen as citizens, even though they just fought for their country. 
They don't have a right to vote for their own representatives. And so you see this kind of flow and we can look back on each of those points and say, okay, but slavery was ended here. Okay, but this law was changed here. Okay, but they were given this right here. But you see that there's this continued shift in the culture where like things keep being pulled back and stripped away and redefined. And we don't have to say at that point that every single American hated black people because I don't believe that to be the case. But we can say that there was a push in the culture, even if it's just on the part of our legislation, right, to limit those rights of these people to actually like move ahead in the culture and move past that history. And then when you continue to kind of put that up at the forefront uh, of everybody's thinking, and then it's really obvious when you walk up to a water fountain and it says coloreds, you know, and so that continues to drive the culture. And then really, even with, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that really just gave the legal rights for African-Americans to fight back against these things. But there was still segregation laws on the books in certain states up into the year 2000. And so in interracial mm-hmm. marriage and different things about property. And so like you, you see that a lot of these things have lingered. So that's kind of a, a wordy way of saying like, when we speak about systems being impacted by sin and we understand that ultimately at the heart of all of these things is not just that America is, you know, the scumbag of the world. On the contrary, I think that this is a a wonderful country that the Lord has used in in many, many ways, but there is this stain. And so these our our country has been driven in many ways by this thinking that black people are less than and the fact that a black person has to fight to get the right to vote they have to fight to get the right to get a home loan they have to fight to get the right to go to school they have to, you know and and each of these things is a they, they receive pushback from the culture on these things it just goes to show that there's something that has permeated the way that our country functions and has functioned and so when we speak of structural or systemic racism that is the way that this sin has impacted the way that we move forward as a country and the way that we institute changes and that's deeply entrenched in our history and that history is unfortunately one that speaks of evil injustices and and wrongs done not entirely i think that the lord has been gracious i see the abolition of slavery and the civil rights act as the graces of god but it has just been a movement that has moved slowly against the pushback of um a culture that has acted wrongly and sinfully against fellow image bearers. Yeah. And it's, and it's, if you realize the story, you, you quickly should be able to understand that it is naive to think that uh, all of those layers of, of true oppression and injustice will just somehow vanish uh, in, in, in the modern moment. Right. And so that just like when slavery was outlawed in 1865, uh, well, that does not mean that uh, blacks were equal. Well, just like Jim Crow, when that ended, that does not mean it just ushered in another era where we are making progress as a country, and yet we cannot be too naive to realize that generations of this kind of experience for black people are going to immensely hinder them as a socioeconomic force, as a social force in the world, you know? They're, they're competing against a history of um, this, this experience and in a culture that has a history of looking at them a certain way, you know? So I think that 
the main thing that should at that should at least one quick thought that should at least hinder us from making simplistic conclusions such as you know black poverty is due to a lack of motivation uh, a lack of desire they're just lazy you know like you cannot simply draw these little these these simplistic conclusions if you look at the full story you know yeah and i think that this is where you know two things that we can think about this a we see that laws don't change the hearts of people you know and the more that we're able to understand that just because a law was instituted or you know the civil rights act was initiated that doesn't mean that people stopped being evil and uh, having this, this sin kind of permeate their thinking that didn't fall away. It's not like, you know, the person who hates black people is like, Oh, I guess I can't do that now because it's illegal. Like that. It didn't change right. like that. And then I think on the backside, bro, like you nailed it. I think that our response to these things should not just be like, okay, what can I drum up as an explanation to why this person is this way or why they, they function in this way. Rather, I think that just as Christians, like, the most natural thing is like, why are we looking for these <laughs> explanations to kind of, because more often than not, we're not looking for these explanations in order to be more compassionate, but rather right. a lot of that conversation is driven by the need or not the need that I don't want to say that by the, the inclination to be able to dismiss and just say, this isn't a real conversation. This isn't a real issue, but that's, that's not, the way that Christ calls us to be, right? We, we right. show mercy. We've experienced mercy, so we show mercy. We've experienced grace, so we show grace. You know, we boldly approach that throne of grace, Hebrews 4, because we have been the ones who have experienced grace. So why should we not be the first ones to say, like, gosh, that's that's really hard. That that sucks, man. Like, that's, that's really painful. I, I'm sorry that my neighbor has gone through this. My brother has gone, especially if it's a brother in Christ, like, dude, that's your family. You know, why would we be the ones to be cynical and dismissive? Um, I just think that we're, we're missing such a phenomenal opportunity to show the heart of Christ in this instance. Mm -hmm. Andre, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're a busy guy. Uh, so great talking to you. I feel like we can keep going for a while, but you know, maybe we can do it again sometime. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for your time. No, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think with this conversation, uh, we, we learn and we grow when we come up against like uh, just a more beautiful way of thinking about these things. And that really is found only in the gospel. And I think that for a lot of Christians that can be kind of just like a you know, a trope on either side, like the, the person that wants to be dismissive will, might say not, not always intentionally, but they might say, well, the answer is in the gospel. So we don't even need to talk about this. And then the person on, on the other side, who's just like fighting for all of these things and, you know, protesting and setting police departments on fire. I hope Christians aren't doing that. Kind of yeah. <laughs> but like they're way on the other side and they're just like, but the gospel is the answer. But to them, that means like social gospel. And I think that, you know, it's not just a trope when we say that, because what we're really looking at is like racism is sin. Like ultimately this whole conversation is happening because there's sin is present and it's hurting people and it has its effect to whatever extent you see that effect is not as important, but we have to agree that the reason that these things have occurred is because of sin. And we understand that the only solution to that is 
in the in the death of Jesus Christ. Right? He he bore that wrath on on behalf of sinners. So both the person who has been hurt and the person who is doing the hurting, their their greatest need is in Christ, and for that to be reconciled. And then us that that have experienced that, you know, should we not be the first ones to to model those things of Jesus, the mind of Christ, the, mm-hmm. the compassion of Christ, the love of Christ. I, I just think that we don't need to explain things away. We don't need to be at the forefront of the political conversation in this regard, but we should be at the forefront of Christian conduct and Christ-likeness. Right, right. And understand that cultural Marxism is a danger, but it's not our only danger. We, we can be uh, you know, hard-hearted towards our brothers. That's another danger. Yeah. Uh, so cool yeah, well no thank you so much for your time brother yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pleasure bro i'm i'm glad to see that the lord is uh continuing to, to shape you not only in this regard but just in general as a pastor and as a leader so it's it's exciting when god graciously teaches us and walks alongside of us and uh, helps us understand these things and, and my hope is that what we've talked about points people to christ it doesn't give them just you know another drop in the bucket of social conversation but rather just you know helps the church think biblically about these things right right thanks a lot man uh it's good to see you and hopefully we'll talk again soon all right brother